This is Me, Myself and Disaster, the show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery and understand how our guests became involved in disasters. Over to you, Disaster Brothers, Josh and Andrew. Hello and welcome back for another episode of Me, Myself and Disaster the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus. Now, whether you've watched breakfast TV this morning or scrolled through your social media feed, the media has an impact on our lives every day. During disasters, this is especially true as we attempt to understand what's happened and access information about the situation. Today on the show, we're talking about media and social media during disasters, including some strategies for emergency managers to work with the media. Andrew, who do we have on the show today? Today on the show, Josh, we're joined by Colleen Haggerty, a freelance multimedia journalist who has worked for the BBC and had her work published in the Washington Post, Marie Claire and Business Insider. She also publishes a newsletter about disaster resilience, preparedness and recovery. We're really excited to have Colleen on the show today, joining us from Los Angeles to talk about the media and her experience in the United States during disasters. It's going to be a great show. Let's head over to the United States and dive in. Hi, Colleen. Thanks for joining us on the show this week. You've covered some big stories as a journalist, including the 2016 presidential election campaign. What led you to become involved in the media and why the interest in disasters? Well, thank you for having me on. I'm really excited to be here with you today. You know, I've always been really interested in storytelling in some way. So I knew I wanted to do some type of journalism. And my career to this point has really been figuring out what exactly that looks like. So I did a bit of television news. I have worked online as well. And in terms of disasters, one of the first sort of stories of international, national importance that I worked on was Hurricane Sandy. And that was that really shaped how I looked at both journalism and certainly disasters for the rest of my career and up to today. So covering Hurricane Sandy for me was incredibly impactful because not only was I covering this event that was significantly impacting people's lives, impacting the landscape of a major U.S. city, it impacted me personally. I was I had my apartment lost power, my family's houses were impacted. So I was able to see it from sort of both sides. And while I've covered other topics since then, as you mentioned, the 2016 election and and a few others, it everything sort of comes back to disasters for me in terms of it touches on politics and technology. And then, of course, at the end of the day, that very human element that we can all relate back to. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think um, Andrew and I have been doing a lot of research on your on your career and following um, where you've been going, and it's it sounds like an exciting path that you're on. But what I'd be really interested to to, to talk about, Colleen, is um, you're obviously at the coalface of a lot of issues reporting on the news. What do you see as some of the biggest issues that our generation is facing at this point in time? And, you know, what do you feel is the level of connectedness with government and public? Obviously, we're seeing a lot of unrest um, in the United States. We're seeing a lot of it even globally here in Australia as well. Um, can you just take us through what are some of those key issues that you're seeing on the ground and maybe a few comments around how you think the government is connecting and, uh, and working with public in that space? 
Absolutely. I'm especially at this moment with everything that's happening, it's it's hard to narrow it down to just a few areas. But I think certainly when you look at the U.S. and you look at our younger generations, a key issue that people are speaking out against right now is certainly climate change and the need to step up in that space and how that really ends up impacting a lot of other areas that I'm sure we're going to talk about today. It impacts inequality. It impacts, of course, disasters and what the future of our cities look like. I think technology as well is a big one. I'm thinking of we there was just the big Twitter hack that happened and in cybersecurity, I think is absolutely something that's top of mind because of that here in the US. And the pandemic has absolutely laid bare, I think, to a lot of people all over the world, maybe some of the areas that not just our government needs to be stepping up for in terms of looking ahead instead of reacting to issues that we're having. I think once you have a community that's better able to connect with each other and have some real grassroots influence on politics, then you can see that pressure being applied to the higher levels of government and hopefully addressing some of these sort of more intangible problems, something like climate change that can feel really big when you're looking at it as an individual person. Yeah, it's, there's certainly some big challenges for our generation to face, I think. Um, talking about disasters more specifically, disaster events generate a lot of media interest. And let's take COVID-19, for example, we've had 24-7 coverage pretty much of the virus for months. Um, media reporting can lead to political pressure and potentially shape the response to one of those disasters. What positive signs have you seen during your experience of how transparent and independent reporting has led to a positive outcome for the community? Sure. I I love this question because I think especially having worked in local news, that's where you definitely see a lot of issues that you can get responses to. I know when I reported on Hurricane Sandy, I was in Staten Island, which there wasn't a lot of national attention there in the beginning. It was looking at Manhattan and the city of Manhattan going the borough of Manhattan going dark. Staten Island's a smaller residential area, so that wasn't where the national news cameras were at the moment. But by being there and by reporting in that space, we were able to get officials to come over there, to have even the president come over there at one point to look at that devastation because it it was one of the worst hit areas. And the people there really felt like for a few days in there that they didn't have a voice. And here they were in this major city, they couldn't cross the bridge. They felt completely cut off from everyone and cut off from a lot of the resources they were seeing helping their neighbors across the bridge. So I think that was a really important moment for me to understand that even if, you know, we didn't have a lot of cell phone service at that moment. So we were putting out these broadcasts and not sure if anyone was really seeing them. Certainly the people around us couldn't see them because there was that lack of service, but then seeing the influx of people who wanted to help, not just officials, but people themselves was really powerful in proving that, you know, it's it's important role of media to give people a voice during those moments when they might not be able to advocate for themselves. I'd just like to unpack that a little bit further, Colleen. Andrew and I have obviously read some of the material that you put out across um, Hurricane Sandy, and it looks like it was a really pivotal and important um, moment to get the community involved and make sure the community was aware of the risk that was coming. So 
it's it can be sometimes challenging to accurately predict the weather for natural hazards and we see that right across the world and as as disaster events become more frequent and the community becomes i guess more desensitized to weather warnings and the emotive imagery we're seeing in the media these days how do you see the role of the media during disasters changing in the future yes and i think continuing with the example of Hurricane Sandy, that came after we had had another storm that was predicted to be the big one about a year before Hurricane Irene. And there were so many warnings of people to really lock down, to leave flood zones, to take all of these precautions. And it ended up being largely not very impactful for people. Maybe there was some power outages, maybe people in certain low-lying areas had some flooding, but it certainly wasn't the destruction and loss of life that we saw in Hurricane Sandy. And there were multiple people who I spoke to before Hurricane Sandy who said, listen, you guys came here before. I've heard this before. We're not going to do all of that again. We're not going to disrupt our days. We're not going to change our lifestyles because this is, it ended up being nothing last time. And I, I think that's a very real concern that people in the media have because you want to convey the risk that is there, but you certainly don't want to panic people. And you also don't want to have people react that way. You don't want them to feel like, oh gosh, here's the boy who cries wolf again. Here's the media fear mongering. So I think it's really difficult. And I think a lot of it is being as transparent as possible about what we know and what we don't know. I think that's something that has been problematic at times throughout the coronavirus because people are so eager to get information that scientific studies, everything like that is being very eagerly consumed. And I think it's important for the media to always be putting it in context and saying, you know what, this study came out here. It could be a very good sign or a very scary sign in this way, but here's what someone else is saying. And this is the best information we have at this moment and not kind of thinking 10 steps ahead or extrapolating from that, but really sticking with those facts at hand and letting people understand that sometimes we're all in this together and we can't always be, you know, looking at the future and telling you what to expect. We can only tell you the best information we have. And I think when people understand that you are trying to present it to them that way and not provide them some crazy, you know, 10 steps ahead analysis with tons of talking heads, giving you different options, then I think that can help people kind of have just some more trust in knowing that you're on their team and you're just trying to keep them safe. I think one of the things that we see in today's culture and society is this um, culture now that we have of a 24-7 media cycle. And I think from, from what I'm taking away, Colleen, is that it's really a fine balance around how you distribute that information, how often we're going out there being transparent and mixing up that content. And we do have a few listeners um, with us that are in that sector. So do you have any tips for individuals that may be operating that environment? You know, how can you navigate that 24-7 media cycle, obviously trying to stay relevant and produce media content, but then how do you balance that with providing a, a transparent and meaningful service to the community and warning them for disasters? Sure. Yeah. I, it's a tough one because there is the demand of 
filling that airtime. And I think we've all probably turned on the TV before and it's been before a world leader is speaking or something, some other big events happening and you just have someone standing up there, you know, while there's a countdown clock and they're trying to just fill that time until you hear what you want to hear. They don't want to lose that watcher, that listener. But I, I think, again, it's just really important to be transparent that journalists, we we have certainly have experiences in these fields, but we're not the experts who are the scientists or or people who are able to, you know, be making the decisions on the ground of what's happening. We're not the government officials. So I think being really confident in our role as helping be at, at some points, be a mouthpiece and saying, this is what you need to be doing based off of what the leader in charge says. And other times, of course, holding them accountable for that. We're not just here to echo what people are saying, but we're here to provide diverse perspectives, make sure you're hearing from not just an official, but also an expert in the field and people who are being impacted. So I think kind of turning the mic over sometimes can be helpful and not just having it be a talking head on screen who's telling you what people are experiencing here, but passing the mic and talking to someone else who's walking by and saying, listen, how did this just impact you? How is this storm impacting your business or your home? Or asking an elected official, well, what are you going to do from here? Because I think that when you do have someone hosting all the time, that can definitely be a downside is that you lack that diversity of voices and perspectives. So talking more about trust in the community, um, COVID-19 has brought to light a range of conspiracy theories, and there's plenty of these around other disasters. For example, there's one about FEMA where they're planning to imprison US citizens in concentration camps, uh, which just seems quite weird. But in this era where the integrity of journalists are being questioned at the highest levels um, in press conferences and that sort of thing, how will the media continue to build trust with audiences? Yes, there are plenty of conspiracy theories that you will see here, and it does not take long on social media to find them. Absolutely. It's something that I think you're seeing a lot of organizations reckoning with in their own ways, as well as a lot of individual journalists trying to figure out how to address it in their own reporting. I think for all of us, a lot of it is having that connection with people and constantly interacting with them. You know, it's we see this with all sorts of issues where when people don't know someone, they can become an other in their mind. And it's easier to write someone off or think that maybe they have negative intentions. But I think when you are being that person who says, okay, if that's what you think, here's the information I have, let's engage over this. And in hopefully a a way that is positive, um, I think that's when you can hopefully start taking steps forward. And especially for journalists on the ground, I know the journalists who I know who are out there reporting in the field right now, they're being respectful of people's spaces. They're wearing masks. If other people don't think that they want to be doing that, they're you know, being respectful of that, but also keeping their own health and safety in mind. So I think it's trying really hard to always be there where people are, always get on their level, reach people where they are. So if they're on social media, you're on social media. If they're out at a rally, you're out at a rally. I think it's establishing that you are a real person and that they can have this interaction with you and get to know you better. And then from there, hopefully realize this is a person I'm talking to. It's not a figure in some 10 dimensional plot. Mm. And 
that's where I think a lot of people are hoping progress can start from. I know personally, I've established a a newsletter and that's somewhere where I'm trying to be really interactive with my community and own up if I feel like something I've written in the past wasn't what I want to write today and answer questions that people are giving me. So I want to create that level of accountability for myself in the same way that I'm looking to hold institutions accountable. I think this idea around partnerships is really important. And I think we see in a lot of spaces in the disaster space and also in disaster risk reduction is, is around this theme of partnerships. I just want to dive into that a little bit deeper. Um, you know, we were talking about before around things that journalists can do um, to help uh, aid, um, you know, how we work in warning our communities during disasters. But I'd be interested to hear from your point of view, someone who's sitting in the seat with the mic, what do you need um, and what helps um, from the other side, from government, um, from NGOs, um, from emergency management agencies? We've obviously got a lot of our listeners that are in that space and they're probably thinking now, well, you know, how do I interact in this space? How do I help out? How do I actually, um, what's my part in that partnership? I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit for us. Transparency always is key. And I understand that is not always possible, you know, Quick responses, of course, whenever possible. I think journalists on the ground during these types of disaster situations, we absolutely understand that first responders in any capacity are incredibly busy and doing such important work. And I think here in the U.S., they often set up sort of media staging areas, which is great because it's a centralized hub that people can go to and know that they can always reach someone there. So even when things get a little crazy on the ground, they know where to go back to. You know, I I think it's very similar to what I was saying before about the way that the media addresses people is Sometimes we just don't know things. Sometimes we're just operating with the best information we have at that moment. And I think it's completely fine when that's the case. I think it's helpful for journalists to know when that's the case. And whether that's something that's perhaps on background, something they're not reporting out, but just to give us an idea of where things stand, I think that's really helpful because if this is a developing situation and maybe there will be more information available in any given amount of time, I think that's helpful for us to be able to say, okay, maybe that's something that we'll hold off on for right now until we have that information that's more solidified and we can report on it at that point versus having to kind of deal with speculations at any given moment. I think that's, I think that's a really important thing. And and one thing that, um, you know, I've really tried to do in my personal career is to try and build those relationships because to be transparent, you have to have trust. If you don't have trust, you can't be transparent. So I think that's a big encouragement out to people is reach out to those individuals um, that are in these fields and start those relationships now before a disaster, rather than trying to forge that trust and that transparency during disaster. I love that. I think that's a really good tip for journalists too, I think, to you know, if you move to a new location, I moved to California a few years back and I was able to meet with some people from our fire departments and say, hi, here's who I am. Here's who I'm working for and get their information. So that way, when something happened, I knew the right person to reach out to. I wasn't calling a department that was already slammed at that moment and saying, okay, well, who can I talk to to get news on in the next half an hour. It it was really helpful to say, okay, I know who to look to. I know what social media accounts to follow. I think that's a big one. I know a lot of 
first responders here, that's their preferred method at this moment is they're putting out on Twitter or on Facebook, okay, we're doing a press conference at this time. So I think for journalists to be sure that they know the right places to look in times of disasters to get the information that they need. So that way, hopefully it helps lessen the volume of emails and requests that you guys are getting on the other side of it, because certainly the work you're doing is critical at that moment. So let's talk more about trust. How are you and other journalists responding to what feels like, from a distance over here in Australia, a pretty difficult operating environment where reporting um, critical of the government in the US and their approach is labelled as fake news and journalists are criticised at press conferences? How are you guys coping with that? Something that I think is interesting about that that maybe doesn't quite come across just from watching news coverage or if you're watching a presidential rally here, having covered some of them, there's there's been a common refrain at a lot of them of chanting fake news, people turning and looking at the section where journalists sit. But ahead of those events is usually when you're able to get interviews with people in the crowd. So when you would ask them about their support of the president and why they wanted to come out there that day. And during those times, I would say the majority of people who I speak to are very open to talking to me and have always been very polite, very kind and very excited to have their voices shared at that moment. So it's it's a bit of a cognitive dissonance for me as a journalist then when it gets to the point that people are sort of doing that chant. And I think some of it certainly is that people might not think about the sort of broader repercussions of a moment like that. I think it's kind of part of a culture in that moment when everyone's doing the chant together. It's something that they've seen on TV before. They're a part of it now. And I, I think it's scary for us because you certainly can see on the other side that some people have started to take it very seriously and certainly have lost a lot of the trust that I know I was able to see early in my career when I was going out in the field and people would say, I'm so grateful someone's here to tell this story or to address what's going on. I'm grateful to have a journalist be here with me. So it's, it's been a, a pretty abrupt shift, I'd say, over those years that we have seen that. And I think for journalists, it's important to, in the same way that you hope that that person you interacted with before they did that chant, maybe at the back of their head is saying, oh, but I, I spoke with a journalist earlier and she didn't give me a, a gotcha question or a question that she twisted my answer to. She just wanted to hear from me and share what she was seeing on the ground to the best of her ability. I would hope that journalists can keep that in mind as well, that, you know, this is not a war between two sides. I think it's it's people remembering that, you know, someone's trying to do a job, they're doing their best to do it. It is not a conspiracy behind it. And the more, again, that you interact with people on both sides of it, I think can kind of help reinforce some of, of that connection. And I think that's something that unfortunately, as we've seen a lot of local newsrooms here in the United States shut down, has maybe been lost and sort of helped fuel that view of journalists as all living in, you know, certain cities or, or coming from certain companies and having a, a specific view that they're pushing. When in reality, the majority of journalists in the U.S. are people whose names you don't know, are people in smaller towns who are doing their best to share what's happening in those towns and keep those people informed. 
Yeah, I, I love conspiracy theories. I've just really sort of started reading about it and just fascinated by the sort of the way that um, people are obsessed with conspiracy theories. And, and I think too, the way that the mainstream media looks at those and works out what is truth and what is fiction is just so important. Without transparent and open journalism, we really miss that. So I think that's something that um, we need to have that trust in journalists and be able to have that sort of reporting to be able to do what we need to, to see and, and, and shape our, our mindset. Definitely. And I, I like what you said in there about seeing how journalists work out the conspiracy theories. I think that's something that we've seen more of in recent years that I'm really excited about is the fact that journalists are kind of showing their work in a way and not just saying, okay, this is fake. That's all, you know, <laughs> they're, they're showing you, okay, I looked into this. Here's the various channels. Here's the multiple people I spoke to. I think that's kind of always been some of the ethos of investigative journalism, but I think we're seeing that applied even more to just sort of the, the journalism that used to be, you know, something happened here, take us for our face value, maybe that that's what happened. I think people are understanding that there's a need to really say, okay, let me walk you through how I got here. And there's a, a journalist with the Washington Post, a really great journalist who had been showing his notes on Twitter for a while when he was doing investigations of President Trump when he was then a candidate. And he would say, okay, here's some financial documents I have and really just kind of take people step by step through it. The New York Times video department does that as well. Well, they'll take photos and they'll say, okay, let's recreate an entire event and show you how we learned from that. And I think that's really cool because I know for me as a journalist, it's certainly right up my alley to see how other journalists are doing this incredible work. But I think for people who are seeing that as well, it, it definitely adds that extra layer of trusting them because you can fact check them each step of the way they're showing you everything they did. And then you can look at that and make your own judgment based off of it. I heard the word fact check. And uh, I think the next word that people comes to mind is then social media. So I'd, I'd love to have a little bit of a conversation now, just shift into another gear and have a bit of a chat about social media and get some of your perspective uh, on this. And I know you wrote a, an article recently about the rise of preparedness kits in America. And I have to admit, I did giggle because you did make a link uh, to Kim Kardashian's Instagram uh, page and, uh, and looking at how uh, she was preparing herself. And I know government and emergency agencies, no doubt, are going to love to see people and, you know, are really excited to see a behaviour change and see a preparedness culture become more normalised in society. Uh, but what do you believe is driving this particular trend, especially um, within the United States? It's probably not so much a trend that we've seen in Australia uh, over the last few years, but it's definitely, Andrew and I have seen from afar and through um, some of your reporting, it's a, it's a story that's on the rise. Yes. And I have to say it was the Kim Kardashian bit that got me interested in this story because <laughs> as someone who reports on disasters to go on social media and see some of my friends sharing a Kardashian endorsed emergency preparedness kit was a very bizarre <laughs> moment for me. It kind of it felt like almost what I was doing was cool for a minute. But I, it is cool. It is cool. cool. It, went away, it went away quickly. <laughs> But yeah, I think that was something that was really interesting to me because it was just kind of these two worlds that felt really dissonant colliding where it was the celebrity pop culture, but then also having a, a mind forward for emergency preparedness. And I think 
before we started seeing a lot of celebrities here posting that one specific kit that I'll get into, the only other sort of cultural touchstone I can think of that we had here in that space was Doomsday Preppers, which was a TV show on National Geographic. And that was looking at kind of the more extreme who has a bunker and not making fun of people, but certainly kind of taking it to dramatic effect. Mm. So it was a very different targeted audience than the people who you imagine are seeing Kim Kardashian's kit and saying, oh, that looks cool. Maybe I should get one. And that kit has an interesting story because it was actually created by someone who is in PR. He works in Hollywood. He's worked with Kim Kardashian and the family before. And he was saying that here in California, we have had years of just devastating wildfires. And some of those have hit pretty close to home for a number of celebrities. So for him, that was really the impetus in looking into the space and then seeing kind of the startling numbers we have here of people who are largely unprepared if natural hazards that are increasingly likely to hit their areas do happen. So he wanted to do something to address that and kind of leverage his social media savvy, his celebrity clients and get people interested. And while that is certainly a trend in itself, it's it's part of a larger movement. I think we've seen as we've seen more disasters that are, are getting larger, are getting more widespread and, you know, hitting areas like New York City that I think before people never really thought of as a zone that might be impacted in the way that it was. So I think people have seen some of these events happening and are sort of getting a bit of a, a switch to flip in their brains about how they would react to them. And then they're also seeing maybe celebrities posting about it and saying, oh, wow, if that's something that this person I look up to is doing, maybe it's a good idea for me to do, too, in the same way that they would buy a, a dress Kim Kardashian was wearing. Well, I'm not sure I'll buy a dress, but I may uh, I may, <laughs> I may, may buy the emergency kit now. But I think it's a really interesting point, though. You know, there's a lot of research in the disaster risk reduction space that, that talks about people need to have a personal affiliation or a personal experience with a disaster to then drive behaviour change. And I think that's a great story and a great example around how, um, you know, an experience, and, and I don't profess to be a, a, a Kim Kardashian buff, but I know obviously reading some of the mainstream media, you know, some of her experiences with um, paparazzi and then um, in 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 France uh, when her room was broken into you know there's some personal experiences there for that individual that is obviously driving that behavior to say I need to be prepared and I'm now aware of the risks that threaten my livelihood and my family right and I think when someone who maybe hasn't had that experience themselves which again, increasingly, I think you're seeing more and more people in the U.S. who have had some sort of brush with it since we are seeing just really widespread natural hazards impacting people here. But when they do see someone like a a celebrity who they admire talking about it, I think that can be a personal in for them as well, even if it's not them rushing out to buy a kit. Hopefully it's them getting that just having a bit more grounding, I guess, for something like a wildfire that might just seem really intangible if you live so far outside of those areas. When you see someone who you admire going through that, I think it it creates a touchstone for you where you say, oh, that's something that really does impact people in a way that 
when I just see the numbers of it, the thousands of acres burned or the however many homes destroyed, it's harder to put that into your own personal context versus when someone who you know or who you wish you knew in person can talk about that. I'm just surprised at how much Josh you know about Kim Kardashian, which is a bit weird, but anyway. <laughs> Closet fan. <laughs> Colin, do you think it's fair to suggest that the motivations behind these social media movements are quite different to those of traditional preppers? Because the remote town um, – you covered a story about Joyce in Washington State, uh, for example. They've been preparing for years for a big earthquake and have established shipping containers just full of gear to protect the community if something happens. What do you see as the key differences between those who are actively promoting their preparations on social media to those who are working on a local community level to build resilience in just their sort of small town? I think something that was really interesting to me after I went up to Joyce is the number of people who I've spoken to since who are in similar communities that I had no idea of. But there are a lot of these places throughout the U.S., which I think is really encouraging where people are kind of coming together on that more community level. And I know I've spoken to the folks over in Joyce since I went up there a few years back, and they said they've heard from people all over the world who are interested in doing a similar model. So I think that's great news all around. And then to, to get to your question, I think something that is going to be interesting to see in communities here is the difference between people who choose to prepare themselves individually and then maybe, you know, talk about it on a show like Doomsday Preppers or promote it on social media and the people who are choosing to go more of that neighborhood route or community route and really make sure that their preparedness is focused on their entire neighborhood having a role. And personally, I think that's a a much stronger model. I know the experts who I've spoken to, even when it comes back to the survival kits, really encourage people to not do this entirely on their own because it's, it's something that you can really draw on the strengths of your community. And when a disaster strikes, you know, it's, it's going to take a while before anyone can get to you. Of course, the government can't be there right away, especially in cases of something like an earthquake. So having that community network can truly be life-saving. If you have points of contact where people are looking out for each other, a, a central meeting place and different people who are equipped to handle first aid or, or different skills in the way that a community like Joyce has, I think that's an incredible gift for that community to know that they're not in this alone. And if something happens to negatively impact them or their loved ones, that someone's going to come there and be looking for them right away, that there's that accountability within their own neighborhood. Just while we're still on the topic of social media, um, you know, I think a lot of people have opinions around uh, obviously their thoughts and opinions on how that has affected society. But I'd really like to understand for you, Colleen, how do you think social media has affected the journalism landscape and how has it changed your role that you work in day to day? Social media is essential for my job. And that's that's been true, I would say, always, but particularly right now with the pandemic and trying to do my best to reduce the risk of others who I'm reporting on. I mean, I, I connect with so many more people through social media at this moment since we are particularly restricted in having those face-to-face conversations. But especially in times of disasters, I mean, social media is the first place I turn to when if I'm not in immediate danger, I am on social media to see what people are doing, because I think I've seen in even within the last two years, maybe 
people are gathering very quickly. And I know Facebook has recognized this themselves. They've built in the tools in their app. So that way people can mark themselves as okay. They can create groups quickly. They have the disaster response pages that come up. They want to be this hub where people gather. And I think people are absolutely taking them up on that. So for me, I'm joining those groups right away. And I'm looking to see what the people in these areas are most concerned about. So that way I can focus in on that and I can kind of get a feel of who's maybe stepping up, who's taking leadership in the situation, who should I be looking to speak with when I get there and any particular issues that are kind of popping up right away, because certainly people are taking to Facebook and saying, okay, I'm dealing with this. Who else is? Can someone help me? And trying to crowdsource that sort of support immediately. And Josh and I do the same thing. When we go to an event like a, a flood or a storm uh, or a fire, we'll jump into the local Facebook group on the community page and try and see who's the who's speaking about this and who's the really influencers in the town to try and, I guess, help to, to connect. Um, they kind of provide these Facebook groups a bit of a, a virtual town square and then residents go there and ask assistance. We've seen um, people start spontaneous volunteering movements, collect donations um, and a whole range of different things on such a large scale so quickly. Following the the campfire in Paradise in 2018, there was a big group established called the Adopt a Family Facebook group. It reached 30,000 followers. Can you tell us a bit about what happened after that? Yes. So again, that was a group I joined almost immediately after the fire itself happened. I believe as it was still burning in some areas, that's when the group popped up. So it was... Particularly, I guess, as the the founder of it later told me, it was particularly sort of well-timed because people joined it as the fire was still burning, as it was on national news, while everyone was looking, this group popped up. It was a public group. So not only did you have residents or former residents of the town joining, people who were seeing it on the news and were just really gutted by the images they were seeing and wanted to help, they saw that as a direct connection to residents. And they were able to provide them with all sorts of supplies so quickly. And it was before the government really was able to do anything. It was as a lot of aid organizations were still sort of getting their footing and setting up their their tents and supplies on the ground. You had people who were sending money through Venmo, who had set up GoFundMe accounts. They were going viral. People were seeing really fast results. And that's how you saw that group go from maybe what was an average sized group, I think, following a disaster where maybe you have a few thousand people to being something that was I think much larger than certainly anyone who was administering or moderating the group had seen coming. And then I'm sure, as you know, from your experience, you know, you, you sort of have, um, there's a a writer, Rebecca Solnit, who called it a disaster utopia that happens following disaster where everyone is so invested in helping and people are just really going above and beyond to make sure that needs are being met, that when people have questions, someone's there to address it and, a community kind of banding together, whether it's in a virtual town square or a real one. But then that tends to go away because people sort of get into the the grit of the rebuilding phase and they're dealing with permitting and they're dealing with kind of the the slog of cleaning up and dealing with logistics. And here in the U.S., you know, they're going through multiple agencies of government from the federal to the local. They're trying to get that insurance money. It's the point in time that the media often leaves. It's the point in time that 
maybe the shifting focus of people who were so eager to volunteer has gone to another incident that's happening and people can start feeling really alone and they can start feeling maybe a bit more desperate, you know, based off the timing of the campfire, that time period hit when it was winter. So people were, who had lost their homes were suddenly in a much harder place than California might've been a few months back when it was a bit nicer, you know, to, to at least be outside. Suddenly it's, it's cold, it's dark, they don't have power and their town has lost most of its residents and businesses and touchstones for them. So that was the point where they started seeing a lot of issues within the group where people maybe felt that help wasn't being distributed equally. People started having some questions about who was even providing them help. There were some scams that took place where people maybe had given their information and, and had a negative impact from that. So a lot of factors weighed into the fact that ultimately this group kind of turned on itself in a lot of ways. We saw residents who used to be neighbors who were skeptical of why one person got help and the other person didn't or felt that it had become a popularity contest or it, it got really negative for a lot of people involved. And I think it was a very tough one because it was a massive lifeline for so many people who felt like this group really gave them the step up they needed when they needed it most. But then a lot of other people felt like they were really let down in the end and maybe demoralized in a moment when they most needed that community support. So within the year of the fire happening, the person who started the group ended up shutting it down. He was seeing a lot of negative impact on his own personal life. He wasn't actually from the town. And I think some people were a bit hesitant to have who they then saw as an outsider dealing with their own recovery efforts. It, it ended up being something that I think for him was not sustainable to keep up. And for a lot of people in the group, had become unsustainable for them as well. It was a negative place for them to be spending their time. So I think it, it's an unfortunate reality that I've seen in a number of groups that kind of balloon so quickly and also try to sustain over a long period of time versus operating in that more sort of utopia space where everyone is much more eager and supportive of each other. So from your opinion then, and I know, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has gone on record, record saying that he believes his Facebook groups you know, are a way to strengthen our social fabric and, um, you know, it's a way to connect people with meaningful communities. But, you know, your article uh, in Medium around the campfire and the groups that came out of that, um, you know, there's kind of a dichotomy there. So, you know, in the end, what's your point of view? Are they helpful or are they not helpful? I think they have immense potential to be helpful because I think even before the days of social media, people wanted to step up during that time. We know that's just a, a fact that people tend to have a really amazing response to disasters. People tend to step up in really incredible ways. And I think this is just sort of the latest space that they're able to do that. That said, I think what we see in those groups is a lot of the issues we see on social media overall. And I would love to see Facebook continue to invest in this space for disasters in the way that they have. I mean, I think they certainly have 
changed their approach over the years in terms of allowing check-ins. And originally that was something that Facebook decided what, what areas got to even do those. And now they've turned it over to community control so that more people can have that power to sort of signal to their own networks, their safety. I think there's a lot of lessons people are learning who are a part of these groups over time. I think Adoptifier is a great example of that where, you know, this was someone who had by all accounts, very good intentions to start the group and maybe didn't have the support that he could have used. So if there was a a place that he could have gone to, you know, maybe somewhere where he could speak to experts like yourselves, if there was some sort of connection that maybe would allow the more grassroots efforts that are taking place on social media to have some more institutional support without it, you know, being folded under the wings of government where I understand there's added layers of bureaucracy. I think that could be something really incredible if if there was a way that people could just have a bit more support from the experts who, who kind of have been there and known this, I, I don't think it should be one or the other. Certainly, you know, we need people who have the years of experience, who have the training, but then I think it's incredible when you're able to harness the hope that people have to be able to be there for their neighbors. So I, I certainly don't see groups going anywhere and I don't necessarily think they should, but I think it would be really great if there was some sort of more institutional support that they could receive, whether it's from tech companies themselves or maybe even from government officials. So just before we wrap up, I think there's one more conversation I'd like to have. And I think for Andrew and I, we're always so humbled by people sharing, um, you know, their lessons, their experiences with, with us. But I think, a big conversation that we need to constantly be having in disasters is around this mental, uh, around mental health. And, you know, through your work, Colleen, you've seen um, a lot of stories, seen people facing the worst days of their lives. You know, how do the stories that you hear um, have a personal impact on you? And what are some of those strategies that you um personally used to cope with that? I know a lot of us um, are feeling a little bit tired with COVID-19. And again, as we've talked about earlier in the episode around this 24-7 news cycle and constantly being bombarded with some pretty um, confronting imagery, what are some of your tips to individuals out there around how can they deal with disaster fatigue? I know I have said a few times so far that transparency is really important to me. So I will be transparent here in saying there are many times I have not coped with it when I've been covering disasters and I have worked largely around the clock and thrown myself into it and then found myself on the other side of that coverage, just absolutely wrecked and exhausted and feeling a lot of, a lot of conflicting emotions. I think a lot of guilt, um, you know, for, for feeling bad even because I I know that I've just been with people who experienced something horrible and I haven't. So what right do I have to feel that way? And I, I think a lot of people watching the news might also feel that way at this point, because when you're exposed to images, we know that has a very negative impact as well. You don't have to live through something yourself to have that impact when you are just seeing these images in front of yourself, listening to them over and over again, particularly in this 24 seven news cycle and particularly with social media, when you can absolutely access it any time of the day. So I think that's a really important point for me is to make sure people understand that they have the right to feel that way at any point. Um, And then to address what I 
have been able to do, since it certainly is something I've worked on, it always sounds, um, I think, a little ridiculous when people in the media tell you to consume less media, because obviously we would like you to be (laughs) following our reporting. And I think especially in times of if, if you're at risk for any sort of disaster, I would very much encourage you to be following along closely, especially with your local media. But I think it's absolutely fine to not be keeping up with every small update to sort of block off time in the day that you can sort of look at news organizations that you trust and look at a diverse group of news organizations, maybe local, national, international, get that important information that you need to make smart decisions but then not be beating yourself over the head with it throughout the course of the day. There's there's for most people, there's no need to do that. And I spoke with a psychologist who specializes in disaster areas and, and speaking with people afterwards. And her advice is to kind of keep a bit of a news diary even. So if you find yourself really impacted by seeing images on TV, maybe you listen to a podcast or maybe you read articles. If there's something that's particularly difficult for you, there's no reason to be putting yourself through that constantly because then you're going to hit the point where you just want to shut off. And we know that's not the best case scenario, especially at a moment like this when critical information is, is very important for making your day-to-day decisions. Yeah, good advice there, especially listening to a podcast. I highly recommend me, myself, and disaster <laughs> if you're interested in listening. But uh, it's been a fascinating discussion, Colleen, and we really appreciate um, your time today. We've posted links to your website and to some of the articles you've discussed or we've discussed today on our website at meandmyselfdisaster.com. It's going to be an interesting few months ahead in the United States and across the world as disasters continue to impact us along with COVID-19. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today, Colleen, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. What a great discussion, Andrew. Who would have thought Kim Kardashian and disaster preparedness in the same sentence? But it's but it's really an, an element that we need to look at in the disaster risk reduction landscape is how do we work with individuals that have had a personal experiences with disasters and how do we drive behavior change with those individuals but also how are we engaging with those individuals that may not have had those um, direct involvement or being directly affected by disasters how are we starting the conversation with them and how are we working with those communities around driving behavior change to become more resilient to disasters yeah I, I think apart from your weird obsession with kim kardashian which i discovered today i really learned about um i think the opportunity to really get involved with community and it's for everyone to consider how do we work differently with communities during disasters and provide them with the resources to manage those Facebook groups, to speak to other community members, to give them a platform to harness the hope in the community and deal with the disaster effectively. That's all we have time for today. Join us again next time as we talk to other guests from across the globe around their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at memyselfdisaster.com. Learn more about disasters and follow our blog at disasterbros.com.